Our scripture reading will be from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, and verses 9 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with y'all again. Good to see the folks on Zoom. Um, Beautiful day. This morning, we uh, go again to Isaiah 40, the text for our little three-part series on themes associated with Advent. Um, I didn't grow up with, in, a, in a church tradition that, uh, you know, uh, I didn't even know what Advent was. It, it, it's, we're not really talking about all the, the traditions and things that are associated with this season in the liturgical year for um, churches that, that do that sort of thing, but, but the theme, if you're thinking, well, Advent's not in my Bible. Actually, it is. You're just reading in English. If you were reading in Latin, you'd see it all over the place. It just means coming, arrival. Uh, your Bible is replete with Advent, actually. That's a language thing. Um, so we're talking about the themes, the concepts behind Advent, not the traditions that have developed over the years um, in which in different churches you know, observe a certain season in the weeks before Christmas. But if you remember from last week, and this is online if you weren't here and want to go listen to it, in our first lesson, we talked about waiting on God, and waiting on God even in seasons of doubt and despair, when God feels hidden to us, or our plight feels hidden from God. Even then, we saw, we should look to God and avoid turning to merely human solutions, Though the people of Judah had apparently lost everything, their homeland, many of their brothers and sisters, 
their temple. And according to Ezekiel, even God's Shekinah glory had departed from among them. And still they are told, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That's what we talked about last week. But the fact is, to take this posture of waiting, of enduring, of choosing to sit steadfastly in that darkness, we have to have what John just talked about. We have to have hope. We have to have the conviction, the expectation that God is indeed coming. He will arrive. He will show up. We have to be convicted that he is there and he will do exactly what he's promised for us. So how can this kind of hope be sustained when nothing seems to be working? When we feel exiled from God's very presence, how can we wait on God when the darkness threatens to obscure him and overwhelm us? Well, the prophet's words to these people several centuries before Christ can again help us. And specifically here in Isaiah 40, he connects waiting on God to beholding God. Beholding God. Verse 9 of Isaiah 40 that Matt just read for us says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Here it is. Behold your God. We will not wait well on God if we are not beholding God. This word behold comes from the Hebrew word hine, which is sometimes translated behold in some of our versions, or look, or see, or even something like hear. You know, hear. Here's God. Uh, it's sort of like in French, you know, voila, like there it is. Here it is. And so we get all these different translations. But basically, he's just saying, look, look what's right here. Behold. He's telling these folks who are struggling to hold on to the belief that God is there, that he's present with them. He's saying, look, while he may seem hidden, he's actually right there. He's all around you. You just have to learn to see him. So waiting on God comes down to beholding God. And I would suggest that so much of our well-being comes from what we're beholding, what we are choosing systematically to see, to focus on, to meditate upon. Rather than perseverating over all that's troubling us, and the list is endless if we added all of our lists together, we need to ponder our God. So let me talk to you this morning for a few minutes about beholding God. First, as we behold our God, we see a God who rules. Behold our God who rules. Again, Isaiah 9, I'm sorry, Isaiah 40, verse 9. In the second half of that verse, we read this. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. When we really behold God, we see that he rules. He rules not only over worldly rulers, but over the world itself. We just sang the song, 
who has held the oceans in his hand. The lyrics for this song come straight out of Isaiah 40. They're either quoting it or paraphrasing it. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, he is seated on the throne. He's ruling. God is indeed above and beyond the cosmos. Verse 22 of Isaiah 40 says, he sits above the circle of the earth and looks down upon its inhabitants as though they were grasshoppers. Later, the prophet says, turn your eyes to the heavens. Verses 25 and 26, he says, asking on behalf of God, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. No other would-be deliverer has this kind of transcendence. They're all inside the world that is the problem. They're limited by this world. God transcends all of that. And that matters when we are in hopeless circumstances. I've been reading over the last couple of weeks a book by Fleming Rutledge titled Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. And she says this about the second section of Isaiah, you know, chapters 40 through 55. Uh, and, and Isaiah 40 sort of kicks off that second section. She says this, almost all of this section of Isaiah is ecstatic. It is the longest, most sustained hymn of praise to the power and purposes of God in the whole Bible. Yet the conditions in which those chapters were written were literally hopeless by any ordinary standards. The people of God had been dragged off to Babylon. They were forced to ponder the fact that their God had apparently abandoned them along with his promises to them. When we remember that, it makes Isaiah's prophetic work seem truly miraculous. He writes that God is not dependent upon circumstances. God creates his own circumstances. God is not located simply within Israel. His power and promises encompass the entire created order. Amen. But when we truly behold God, we not only see a God who rules, who has power. We not only see a God who can, but we also see a God who cares. Behold your God who redeems. He's characterized not only by transcendent power, but also by perfect tenderness. Tenderness toward us. He doesn't just rule over creation. He has regard for our condition. Notice that verse 9 doesn't just say, behold God. It says, behold your God. Though they had sinned against him grievously and repeatedly, God is coming to redeem them, to gently carry them. Verse 11 that Matt read talks about God's gentle, shepherd-like temperament and regard for us. He picks us up in his arms like little lambs and carries us. Now, to be sure, the book of Isaiah presents God as holy. 
completely other, completely beyond this world with its ways and its limitations and its sin. Uh, remember Isaiah's vision of God back in chapter 6, that sort of inaugural vision? He, he perceives in some limited fashion at least God's perfect holiness, God's glory. And remember his response, he recoils in dread. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. So God is holy in the book of Isaiah. But the same book of Isaiah also refers to this holy, set-apart, distant God repeatedly as the Holy One of Israel. That's a common phrase in Isaiah. Think about that. The Holy One of Israel. That's almost a contradiction in terms because holiness means you're not of anybody that you know that's conventional. But he's the Holy One of Israel. This holy God is a God who comes near. He is Israel's God, and he's our God. He's your God. And he is our God despite our sins because he is a redeeming God, not just a ruling God, but a redeeming God. And we need to behold this aspect of his being and his character and his, his temperament toward us, his disposition toward us. God is a God whose affection for us impels him to pursue us relentlessly. And the fact is, we have difficulty, I have difficulty at times, believing that God could care about us like that. Do you have that trouble? Especially considering our sin and how pervasive and persistent it can be in our lives. Now, we can, we can understand why we would need God, but why on earth would he desire us? But God's ways simply are not our ways. It's a mistake to project our thinking upon God. In fact, in Isaiah 55, he says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, like you don't have anything to offer me, come anyway. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then he pivots down in verse 7 and says, let the wicked turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. And then notice this, a passage that we often use for everything under the sun except God's grace. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. You may not think that way. That's how I roll. For as, my, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's not saying that in the context of apologetics or God moves in mysterious ways when you can't understand something. That may all be true. In the text, he's talking about, I know you can't get your brain around a grace like this. Your ways aren't my ways. Don't worry about it. You're wicked. Come on. I want you. I'll pardon you if you want me. So our God is a God who rules, but he's also a God who redeems. Isaiah 40 Verse 1 says, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Her iniquity is pardoned. He pardons us because he loves us. And it's his desire. It's his idea to save us. And there is a lot of comfort in that. So behold your God who rules. Behold your God who redeems. And thirdly, we need to behold our God who reveals. Verse 9 of Isaiah 40 says this. Go up to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. Do you know, notice all those words of, of, of speech, of language? Lift up your voice, say good news. There's a message here. Right at the outset in chapter 40, when he says, comfort my people, he says after that, speak tenderly to them. In verses 3 and 6 of Isaiah 40, we read about a voice crying or a voice saying. Indeed, there are 11 times in Isaiah 40 when we find a word or a term for speech. The word of the Lord has spoken. This God who is sovereign, this God who saves, is also a God who speaks. And Isaiah tells those in darkness to behold God, to look at him, take a deep gaze at him. And apparently the way to look is to listen. You want to see God better? You want to behold God in all of his glory and power and love? We need to learn to listen to him. He's a God who reveals. He speaks. And so God's word becomes all important in this process of waiting on God through the dark seasons of life. Scripture tells of God's mighty acts of deliverance throughout history, which remind us of his power and his love. In concrete ways, real ways, things God has done. Scripture contains God's promises, which tell us what he will do. And those can sustain us through difficult circumstances. And scripture is our guiding story, our defining narrative. It has the ability to do nothing less than reframe our reality. It does. Neurologically, that's true. It can reframe the way you see things, your reality. It reorients us. It can reshape us. Isaiah 40, verse 5, assures us that we shall see the glory of the Lord. We shall see the chabod, the, the weight, the substance, the splendor of this God. And focusing on his rule, his redemption, and his revelation helps us behold that glory. And let me say this. To talk about beholding is to talk about something other than beehive activity. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. To talk about beholding is to take the focus off of activity, per se, and, and to be more intentional about our thought world. That's what beholding's about. We live in a culture that is very impatient with such things. It's anxious to feel busy, to feel practi practical and pragmatic. I mean, that's, that's, that's in the DNA of our culture. You better be moving. Right? At all times. Sometimes when I read through a book like Ecclesiastes, I'm like, this is the most non-Western thing I could possibly read. Every one of us would look at somebody, the things Ecclesiastes holds up as kind of making the most sense under in this vain world, we'd go, that person's lazy. They're not productive. They're not a good candidate for this or that or the other. Because they do their work and they come home and they, they go to sleep. And they sleep well. We're trying to run the world half the time. 
if we behold God, we will be disabused of that potentiality, lickety-split. Because we're not talking about what we're doing and whether my hands or feet or mouth are doing this or that or the other. We're talking about what I'm looking at, what I'm pondering, what I'm contemplating. So beholding isn't so much about what I'm doing as about taking time to complicate. And so sometimes the thing we need to do is to look. Take longer, more sustained looks at our God. We need to mind what we're focused on. We need to make our thought world more deliberate and less a matter of default. Let me ask you this, what's more important? The things that life brings us, you know, brings before us, or our perspective on the things that life sets before us? Arguably nothing is more practical. We wanna be practical? Arguably nothing is more practical than your perspective. That'll manifest in a thousand concrete ways. Your perspective, your vantage point, the way you look at things and behold things can radically alter your life. Let me share with you something I read on a blog about the NASA astronaut Ron Guerin. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his name right. He first became aware of the transformative power of a change in perspective as he soared through the inky blackness of outer space in 2008, attached to the remote arm of the International Space Station. Beneath him, Earth glowed like a beautiful blue jewel hanging in a vast black universe. As he took in this vision, suspended millions of miles from the only home he had ever known, he watched the line that separated day from night move across its curved surface, casting long shadows as thunderstorms flashed. Cities and towns came alive with lights as the darkness of night cloaked them. Shooting stars flared across the heavens and curtains of shimmering auroras danced. Looking at planet Earth from this great distance, seeing it as a whole living, breathing organism, he experienced himself and this life from a whole new perspective. I was filled with awe, he wrote. That vantage point that we astronauts have of seeing our planet from space changed everything. Being physically detached from Earth made me feel deeply connected with everyone on it. He later wrote a book called The Orbital Perspective. And in it he said, as I looked down at the earth, this stunning, fragile oasis, this island that has been given to us in the harshness of space, I was hit in the gut with an undeniable sobering contradiction. In spite of the overwhelming beauty of this scene, serious inequity exists on the apparent paradise we have been given. I couldn't help thinking of the nearly one billion people who don't have clean water to drink, the countless number who go to bed hungry every night, the social injustice, all of the conflicts and poverty that remain pervasive across the planet. And the result is, if you read up on him, this changed his whole life's path, what he was into, what he wanted to do with the rest of his days. And now he works with a kind of new 
uh, urgency in various organizations de uh, dedicated to bringing different people together to transcend the conflict and work together to solve all these problems on planet Earth. And sometimes and astronauts routinely report those kinds of experiences. They're like, they're fundamentally radically changed. They call this the overview effect. The effect that happens on your psyche, on your heart, on your thinking, when you see everything from a different perspective as a, a, an overview, you know, millions of miles away. He, he's still living on the same planet. Nothing's changed in terms of what life's brought before him or will bring before him. Same problems, right? But he's looking at it all from a radically altered perspective, and that changes everything for him. An even more powerful shift in perspective can come from beholding the God who sits even further above what Isaiah calls the circle of the earth. You know, in 2020, our church is focused on worship. And worship really begins and ends with seeing how glorious God truly is. And as we live through the darker seasons of life, nothing can comfort, comfort God's people more than truly beholding him in all his glory. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do one last lesson uh, on Isaiah 40 as we talk about these themes in Advent. Thanks a lot for your presence today, folks on Zoom, everybody on the lawn, and for your uh, attention.